There is a tension in Scripture between the law and the gospel. There's a tension, a, a law and gospel tension. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. You see, the law and gospel have different origins. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It often seems that the law and the gospel often don't get along with each other. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. As sin reigned in death, grace reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It often, as I read scripture, appears as if the gospel is actually mocking the law. Salvation is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Do you hear the tension? There is a law-gospel tension. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This tension between the law and the gospel is in full display. It's on full display in 2 Kings 13. And I want to explore this strain through three points. I got three points in my sermon this morning. Point one, God's people are hard-hearted. Point two, God's people are half-hearted. And point three, God is tender-hearted towards his people. And perhaps it's better to put it this way. The law of God makes God's people hard-hearted. Or at best, half-hearted. But the gospel makes God tender-hearted towards his people. And that's really the truth of our text this morning. The main idea, the gospel makes God tender-hearted toward his people. Because God's people are first hard-hearted. And, and, and we're hard-hearted, and it seems to be the law's fault. I think it's the law's fault. Romans 4.15 says, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Chapter 13, verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Hazziah, king of Judah, Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned for 17 years. We're back in the northern tribes. We're, we're looking at the Jehuite reign, the reign of Jehu. Jehu was ordained by the prophet Elijah to be Ahab's destruction. And he was faithful to the command. He was faithful to the covenant. He wiped out that ungodly serpent, that serpentine line of Ahab, completely off the face of the earth. And God rewarded him for his obedience with four generations. Your sons will reign for four generations. And now we are looking at the first generation. Jehoahaz was the first of Jehu's reign, the four generations. God was a blessing to Jehu, and look how his people returned the favor. Verse 2, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He was an evil king. Why was he evil? For he followed the sins of Jeroboam of 
the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin and did not depart from them. Jeroboam's sin, the sins of Jeroboam. What were the sins of Jeroboam? He built a temple in Bethel. Now, God didn't forbid building a temple in Bethel. And so Jeroboam's like, well, God doesn't forbid it. I can do it. But God did command that they must worship in Israel. And that was the sin. He didn't do what God commanded. You see, proper worship is according to God's word alone. It is true that God forbids. In Scripture, God forbids, and we forbid what God forbids. We do not do what God forbids. But we also only do what God commands. Now listen, this is really important. We not only do what God, we, all, we not only not do what God forbids, we follow God's law, but we also only do what God's word commands. This is sola scriptura. And I understand it's very strict. It's a very strict rule to follow God's word alone. So perhaps it's better to simply follow what God forbids, not do what God forbids, but then be free as long as he doesn't forbid it. To worship any way we choose as long as he doesn't forbid it. If he doesn't forbid it, we can do it. And perhaps that's the freedom that Christians should explore. But then are we bound to man's freedom? You see, there's no escaping the law. The question is always, whose law are we going to follow? God's, God's alone, or are we going to allow man freedom and we follow man's opinions, commandments, and ideas, which is dangerous. I have, to, I have to confess, when it comes to God's word, I have a don't tread on me sticker over my soul. <laughs> I bleed gassed in yellow and black. Do not tread on me. I don't want to follow your man. I don't want to follow man. I don't want to follow man's ideas and, and man's religion and man's opinions and man's will. I want God's word alone because there's perfect freedom there. You see, freedom is only found in sola scriptura. Avoid sola scriptura and you will be bound to a man and his ideas and his commandments for your life. And before you know it, you're worshiping in Bethel where God has not forbid, but you're not doing what God has commanded. God's word equals freedom. That'd make a good tattoo, perhaps on your forearm. God's people are often hard-hearted <laughs> about the things of God. For we desire to follow our own hearts. And that's the problem with the law. It's our dark hearts are the problem. You see, proper piety begins with the word and the sacraments. Our piety is our conduct before God. It begins with acceptable worship. It ends with being faithful to the word and not departing from it. So reformed piety, this is what you have to understand about reformed people. Reformed piety is sola scriptura. It's very strict piety, I understand. But it's good. <laughs> it protects us. And God wants acceptable worship or else. Verse 3. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel because they worshiped in Bethel. And he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the king of Hazael. So even though Yahweh promised Jehu four generations on the throne, there were still divine punishments for neglecting God's rule, for neglecting the regulative principle of worship, and neglecting it was severe. Verse 7 says, For there was not left to Jehoahaz, an army of more than 50 horsemen and, and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen for the king of Israel had destroyed them and made them like the dust of the threshing. Threshing dust. Threshing dust meant Israel's army had become nothing. They were weak. Israel's protection was nothing. Easily be blown away like dust caught by the wind. And by their faithlessness, they were without earthly security. By the law, they were condemned. That's the point. The law has condemned them. But there's tension here. The law had condemned them, but... Verse 4. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. There was judgment... But there's mercy. That's how it always works. Grace follows condemnation. And condemnation follows the law. But then comes mercy and salvation. And that's the way salvation works. Salvation always follows sin. Verse 5, Therefore the Lord gave Israel a Savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. God gave him a savior. Now, the text never tells us who the savior was, which means it's unimportant. We don't know who the savior was. It never explains the savior, but they got a savior. And it's, 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 it's unimportant. But what's important in the text is the clause, Israel lived in their homes as formally. Israel lived in their homes as formally. That's important phrase, clause, as formally. This describes, this as formally describes exile for the first time as an event. Exile is coming. But the narrator is already bringing it up. Because this was written to the people in exile. And the narrator is saying to the people in exile. Exile in Assyria. He's saying to them, hey, remember when it used to be good? Remember back when we lived in our homes as formally? Remember when we were safe in the land and we sinned but God was good to us? We failed, but God was gracious. Remember how good it used to be? Not now. Now we're in bondage. Now we're in exile. Now we're under the law and strict judgment only. Therefore, now life is miserable in Assyria. But remember how good it used to be? That's how, God, that's how good God was back then. He was so good that, that he turned to his people and delivered them with a Savior. But not now. Not now. And we know why. Verse 6. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. It doesn't get any hard-hearted than this. 
It doesn't get any hard, harder than this, nevertheless. God was good to them. God gave them the Savior, nevertheless. God's salvation made no difference to their religious outlook. God was good, and they were no way going to return the favor. God was gracious, they became worse. It adds the Asherah. God was gracious, they became worse. They didn't give God any gratitude. Rather, they simply continued in their sin, and they compounded it with the reintroduction of the symbol of fertility that Jehu actually sought to destroy. This is worse than a dog going back to its vomit. They not only were a dog going back to its vomit, they ate the other dog's vomit. <laughs> it's pure, sinful, evil. Because God's people are hard-hearted. God is good and we return the favor with a hard heart. It's as if we hate his law. And if we obey the law, it's only spotty ever at best. Which brings us to our second point. God's people are, are half-hearted. And again, it's the law's fault. Listen to James 2.10. For, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one point, has become guilty of it all. Verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoahash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned for 16 years. Verse 11. This is the second generation, right? He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Second generation, just as evil as the first. Despite Yahweh's dynastic grace to Jehu and giving him the throne for four generations, neither he nor his sons repent of their sins. They do not repent of Jeroboam's sins. There's, there's no thankfulness. There seems to be no sanctification. There's no desire to serve the Lord, to remove the idolatry from their midst. There's just grace and more sin. There's just God blessing and saving, and they returning the favor with evil. And that's the order, and that order is important to see. God gives, and they trample God under their feet. All we get from Joash is sin and death. It's the story of our life. Sin and death. But there's tension. There's tension here as well. There's tension in verse 14. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha, the prophet, fell ill and... He fell ill in a period when Israel's chariots and horsemen were like the threshing dust. They had no chariots and horsemen. And their last hope was about to die. You see, the prophet Elisha was a, was a powerful weapon in the hands of Israel's kings. He often delivered God's people. And so the tears that Joash cries here are really not tears for a man of God, but tears for he's losing his last hope. His last hope was dying. It's the law, right? Yet there's grace. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. And so he took a bow and arrows. 
God was gracious and through a sacramental archery lesson, Elisha announced victory over Syria. Shoot the arrow out the window. You're going to take them over. You're going to win. You're going to defeat the Syrians. And Joash's response to this good news was less than satisfactory. Verse 18, and he said, take the arrows. He took them. He said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. He struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times and you would have struck down and you would have, then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will only strike Syria three times. You see, the man of God was angry. He's angry at a half-hearted response. He did just enough. He struck the ground three times. He wasn't overjoyed by the word of God. Every turn of God's grace in Israel, and it's not just this verse, but it's just the whole chapter. Every turn of God's grace, his people respond without care or with just a little care, either half-hearted or hard-hearted. Israel either didn't care or cared little. God's people were hard-hearted at best, half-hearted. And that's the law, and that's the problem with the law. Depravity is the problem. We are sinners, and there's no law to change it. We are damned by the law. Damned by God. That's the law. But there's a tension in the text. There's a tension because the gospel makes God tender-hearted toward his people. Verse 20. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen. And the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Resurrection. Though Elisha was dead... His power lived on. The law kills. But the gospel regenerates. There's a tension here. That's the point of verses 22 through 23. Now Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious. He was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and he turned towards them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Underline that, until now. Again, we're in exile. Until now refers to the Assyrian captivity. God was gracious and did not destroy Israel until he did. God is gracious with his people over and over and promised he would not destroy them until he did. Until now. You see, 2 Kings was written in a post-exilic, was written to a post-exilic people of God. They were once again enslaved into the house of bondage in Assyria. But even here in exile and under God's wrath, there was hope. If they could contact the great prophets of the past, if they can come into contact with the prophets of the past, with God's word in the past, if they can come in contact, perhaps they might live again. Though they have been thrown into the tomb of exile by marauders, perhaps Elisha could cause them to live again. 
Perhaps God's love was strong enough to overcome death. Perhaps God's grace is greater than their sin, even in exile. Perhaps the gospel could deliver them even in enslavement. And the answer to this can, what if, can, perhaps God will save, perhaps God will deliver, the answer to their dilemma and the answer to the tension between the law and the gospel, the answer to this dilemma and this tension is covenant theology. Covenant theology is actually always the answer in Scripture. That's what Scripture is about. You see, God made a covenant with Jehu. He made a covenant. His line lasted four generations. He promised that his line would last four generations. Yet, that didn't mean that they were free to do as they chose. They had to follow God's word or else they would face consequences. God made a covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. Yet the throne was overcome because there were stipulations. God made a covenant with Moses. A land and people, a people in a place, yet they lost their place because there were laws to keep. You see, all these covenants say this. They say, do this and live. Just like the Edemic covenant. Do this and live. The day that you don't do this, that day you will surely die. So you see, all of these covenants are all backed by the law. Therefore, they all end in misery. But there's a tension. <laughs> God made another covenant. 430 years before Moses, he made a covenant with Israel's ancestors, and it's different. You see, the Abrahamic covenant stands out from all the rest. You have all these covenants, but standing back from all of them is the Abrahamic covenant. All the other covenants are conditional. Do this and live. The kings had to be righteous. The Jews had to be perfectly obedient. Do this and live. But the Abrahamic covenant has a different word. Its word is hope. Its word is peace. Because its word is grace. The Abrahamic covenant says, believe this and live. So you have the law, do this and live. You have the gospel, believe this and live. And this is the reason for God's salvation throughout the Old Testament. They were saved by faith because of grace. You see, the gospel was the post-exilic Jews' hope. It's always been that way. For the Lord is gracious to his people. For the Lord is gracious to his people through Abraham's offspring. Offspring who kept the law in our place. Galatians 3, 16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham. So the promises made to Abraham. The promises made to Abraham were, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings. So the covenant with Abraham is not to a nation or a people group, an ethnicity. 
to a nation state, it's made to an offspring who is Christ. You see, the covenant of Abraham, not referring to many, Paul says, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. There, the tension is resolved. The law, gospel tension, the tension between unconditionality and conditionality is found in Christ. You see, what God requires in the law, what God requires in the law, he gives you in the gospel. What God requires in the law, he freely gives in Christ. For Christ fulfilled the law. He was obedient to the point of death. He met the law's requirements because the law says, the law says, it's not the hearers of the law who are right before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So Christ did it. He also fulfilled the law's justice. For the law says the wages of sin is death. So Christ died for sinners. You see, Christ is the real chariot and horseman of Israel. He's Israel's real chariot and horseman. And by faith in Christ, even though you're faithless, even though you're hard-hearted and at best half-hearted, no matter your sin or your sinful nature with which you struggle your whole life long, you are righteous as you are righteous in Christ, as Christ is righteous for you. We are saved by God's promises in Christ. That's the Abrahamic covenant, not referring to many, but one who is Christ. And so when the writer of 2 Kings refers to the Abrahamic covenant, he's referring to the gospel. The post-exilic Jews' hope was Jesus Christ. Christ is the yes and amen of all of Scripture. So when the law comes after you, and the law comes after you, the gospel's got your back. <laughs> There's a tension. The law comes after you, and the gospel says, I got this. You shut up. You go away. You have no power here. By faith in Christ, the law cannot condemn you. You are justified. And Christ is a complete Savior. You see, we're not only redeemed from the law. In Christ, we're being renewed by the Spirit to serve the law. And we serve the law not out of servile fear. We are not under the law's threats. We are not under the law's judgments. We're not under the law's condemnation. For if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And we serve as grateful sons and daughters of the King of glory. And we are led by the Spirit and His gospel. Christ is the chariot and horseman of heaven. And He's here to carry you from this sad world. And he will carry you by Scripture alone. And He is carrying you by grace alone that you might live by faith alone, in Christ alone, and so you will live free. Be free. Look to the gospel. Free yourself of the tension between the law and the gospel. Free yourself from man and his ideas and his opinions and his commandments. And be free, for we are free in Christ and only in Christ. And now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, be glory now and forevermore. Oh, man.
At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.